Welcome aboard the Coastal Connection. I'm Jennifer Ritter Guidry, your guide for this trip through Louisiana's coastal wetlands. Sea turtles of the Gulf of Mexico? Sea turtles of the Gulf of Mexico. <laughs> sea turtles of the <laughs> Sea turtles of the this episode on sea turtles of the Gulf of Mexico got a big assist from family members of mine near and far, including my son Aldous, my brother Stephen, and his son, my nephew Luke. And Luke is 10 years old, and he's been obsessed with sea turtles his entire life. So we had a lot to talk about. He had some information he wanted to share. He had some questions he wanted answered, and he's really excited to just learn more about the sea turtles of the Gulf of Mexico. I hope you are too. It's going to be a fun episode. Throughout the world, there is only seven sea turtle species. Of those seven species, five call the Gulf of Mexico their home. Sea turtles are reptiles, so they require air to breathe and land to lay their eggs. However, the majority of their lives are spent underwater. Unlike their freshwater relatives, the heads and limbs of sea turtles are fixed outside the shell and cannot retract into the shell. This distinctive feature, along with a streamlined shell, makes them more hydrodynamic in the water than their land-based counterparts, allowing them to maneuver easily through their saltwater habitat. Sea turtles are generally not extremely fast swimmers. Usually they cruise at around just under a mile to almost 6 miles an hour, but they have been found to swim up to 22 miles an hour when they're frightened. To help them efficiently power their bodies through the water, sea turtles have long flippers instead of the webbed feet of their freshwater counterparts. The large and strong front flippers act like paddles to propel them through the water, while the smaller back flippers function as rudders to help them steer. In females, the hind flippers have another purpose as well. They're used to dig an egg chamber in the sand when they come ashore to nest. Um, the leatherback, hawksbill, chem's friendly, grand, and loggerhead. All right. All of them are omnivores. And what does that mean? They eat plants and meat. And what else do you know about them? Are they all critically threatened or endangered? They're, they all um, are pretty much vulnerable to the, uh, to the wild sense. They get us uh, since they get uh, since they're, most of them are endangered because uh, sometimes they get uh, accidentally uh, caught um, they or some of them uh, uh, get attacked by boat motors by accident, or some or some places in the world they get poached, they get hunted. As Luke said, most sea turtles are omnivores, meaning that they eat both plants and animals. The only vegetarian sea turtle is a green sea turtle. However, the green sea turtle did not start out as a herbivore. As hatchlings, the green sea turtles eat fish eggs, mollusks, and crustaceans. It's not until they, they get to adulthood that their diet becomes so specialized and they switch exclusively to algae, seaweed, and seagrasses. The leatherback sea turtle is another specialist, but a, a carnivorous one. Leatherbacks are known for preying on jellyfish, though they'll also eat squid and other jellyfish-like invertebrates. The rest of the sea turtle species eat a more varied diet, though most do have a favorite meal. Hawksbill sea turtles have diets that are up to 95% sea sponges. Hawksbills will also eat squid, shrimp, and algae. Loggerheads have the widest variety of diet among all the sea turtles. They'll eat sponges, corals, barnacles, sea cucumbers, jellyfish, sand dollars, and many other marine organisms. They have really large, strong jaws, and that allows them to crush and eat all kinds of prey. 
The Kemp's Ridley favorite food is crabs. They also eat fish, jellyfish, and other mollusks. Sea turtles don't have teeth, but instead have very sharp beaks and strong jaws which they use to crush their food. Every sea turtle also has a stiff downward projection in their throat called papillae that prevent their meal from slipping back out of their mouth. Green sea turtles, due to their specialized diet of marine plants, have evolved serrated jaws to help them tear and munch their fibrous meals. Leatherbacks have no distinct beak like other sea turtle species. Instead, their mouths function like scissors to grasp and swallow their jellyfish prey. research ecologist with the U.S. Geological Survey, and I'm based in Davie, Florida. I lead a large reptile research team, and that includes um, a whole bunch of work on sea turtles, both uh, captured in the in the water as well as on land. There are five species of sea turtles that are regularly observed and that nest uh, anywhere in the Gulf of Mexico on sandy beaches. And all of them are threatened or endangered, and so they have a lot of challenges in the water as well as on their nesting beaches. They range from the deepest diving leatherback sea turtles to um, the smallest hard-shelled sea turtles um, that include Kemp's Ridleys and Hawksbills. But I work a lot on loggerheads and green turtles because those are the most common in my areas in the Gulf. And some of my study sites include uh, places like the glorious Dry Tortugas Network, which is accessible only by seaplane or uh, boat. You can take a ferry out there, um, but so there's a lot of sort of, I focus on a lot of the green captures of sea turtles um, in these lovely places. But I also work uh, at night on the nesting beaches because the females this time of year do come and lay their eggs. So it's an opportunity to capture them and look at the health of, of how they're doing as well. Some are very deep diving. You say some are, and then the, some are smaller, but even small is kind of a relative term, right? <laughs> Yeah, so the sea turtles, I say small, but, um, you know, a large loggerhead can be 400 pounds. Um, usually they're more in the 250 to 300 range. A big green turtle can be over 400 pounds, and those are really hard to get out of the water and onto a boat. They carry themselves across the beach, you know, dragging their bodies up uh, with their front flippers and pushing with their back. The hawksbills are smaller body but they can still be quite heavy but yeah so they range in size but they're still fairly large and ones that we see on the nesting beach could be anywhere from 25 to 100 years old oh they're like a dinosaur in the sea pretty exciting when we get to handle them yeah so we have a 26 foot research boat but it has a few modifications one being a dive door that comes out so we can take the like side of the door side of the boat basically out we call it a door we can take it out and push the turtles on once we capture them in the water and people on the boat pull them in through that door so you don't have to pull them up onto the gunnel and down onto the boat but we jump off the boat on the front it's called uh, turtle jumping or rodeo capture and so you have to grab the turtle right behind its head and right at the tip of the rear of the shell and you get it pointed up so it is an athletic event and you have to have some tra- very special training to be able to do this carefully for you and carefully for the turtle and the people on the boat and everything um, and so we we do work in a lot of places where we can see them fairly well and then you follow them in the water at a safe distance and and when they're coming up for air, jump as the, the primary jump where you time your jump down onto the turtle when it's kind of coming up for air. Uh, we've gotten pretty good at this, and so there's some species like loggerheads that uh, might be sitting a little bit, and those are a little bit easier to catch. I wouldn't I wouldn't say any of this is easy, but they're a little easier to catch than green turtles because they're not as fast, so they're a little bit of a slower-moving target. So if you miss grab by an inch or two, you can sort of adjust your hand, whereas with green turtles, they're super fast and so strong. If you miss grab, you're going to miss it. They're also very slippery. They don't have a lot of crevices and stuff on their shells, whereas loggerheads and foxbills have a little bit more, uh, they have barnacles growing on the top. Your hands might stick a little better when you when you jump on them with your gloves and stuff. Uh, and then the other way we catch them is dip netting, and so it's the same kind of idea. You're, you're dip netting from a boat, so you follow the turtle, and we do this with a lot of juveniles, because uh, they're quick and shifty in the water. And so we follow them on an open flat area, and you sort of jab the dip net right in front of them, and swoop it back and they get right caught in the net and you pull the net up Um, and those two methods are are working very well for us to catch them so they're really um hand capture methods and then just a dip net but we call them in water methods and then the other way is we go to the beach for the whole night and we walk around the beach every 30 minutes and we intercept nesting females so they walk up the beach and see their big track which is like a tractor went up the beach from the water and then we box them in in a corral so we build our box around them once they finish their nesting activity and we 
have them take maybe, you know, 20 or 30 steps away from the clutch of eggs. We mark where that is, and then we work them up uh, a series of measurements and taking blood samples and tissue samples and things like that. And sometimes we put satellite tags on them to look at their location over time, which has been a really exciting part of, of that I do. You know, we shift our sleep schedules, and it's all about catching the turtles at their optimal times. Uh, we try to get some sleep when we're out there, but yeah, you can't do the rodeo work when it's really um, windy, but sometimes windy nights bring green sea turtles, so I never know what I'm going to get on a trip. I just know um, it's going to be some combination of you know, nesting work in the summer and then in, in water work um, when, the, when the conditions are good for us. What constitutes good conditions for in water work? So really little bit of a little bit of wind, you know, almost no chop. I went out in Biscayne last Monday and it was beautiful. It was like blowing five to 10 and um, just clear water. So you don't have a lot of white waves or white caps or anything. And you can literally like follow a turtle. If it's 10 feet underwater, you can see it swimming. And when it's really deep or really turned up water, you just, you can't see that far in the water column. Yeah. I was going to say, so hurricane season, how does that coincide with your research with the turtles? Um, well, yeah, our August trips have been, we've been pretty lucky lately with our August, our August trips. Um, it tends to be hot and calm, but we certainly haven't really been blown out too, too much. Um, like when we go to the Tortugas, some, there's some places where we can work cause they're hit sort of, uh, on the opposite side of a tiny little spit of land or on the opposite side of a nesting beach where we know we can work even if it is a little bit windy. Yeah, we pick and choose our weather windows. Some of our work is fairly local here, so this game day is an hour away. And so two of us went and did, you know, five hours on the water the other day. And then our bigger trips involve, you know, like it's an expedition. So we go out for a week to 10 days. We have all of our food and water. And I mean, we're really like we're out there and it's it's glorious. There's very little contact with anyone but our team. So we're really self-sufficient and it's just a really beautiful place, but it's the only way to really get work done out there effectively. It takes a day to get there. It takes a day to get home. So to get a couple days out there, you really even need like a four or five day trip. So yeah, I've been working there since 2008. So figured it out. For the past decade or so, we've had various projects. We had a eight year project down in the Virgin Islands. And for that, we went twice a year, once in the spring and once in the fall. So we did a trip in March and one in September. And the reason was we, we wanted to get uh, captures done on sea turtles every six months. Uh, we had acoustic tags on animals down there as well. So they were we had listening stations deployed throughout the whole uh, Buck Island Reef National Monument. And so we would go down and sort of in batches, like tag more sea turtles. And so they would be picked up by this this array. And then we download the data and figure out their, their habitat use patterns. And we were interested in seasonal patterns that they were showing. So we had to go down every six months. Um, we have some recent exciting projects where we're trawling for turtles and that really is trying to fill gaps in winter tracking for these sea turtles in the gulf we don't have a lot of winter dive pattern information on on hard-shelled sea turtles so we need to actually catch them in like the fall if we're going to get them tracked through the winter months and into the spring the underlying thing for all my projects on long-lived sea turtles is capture mark recapture so we have to catch them tag them and then recapture them over time um, so we're always trying to lay the, the groundwork with the initial captures and then the recapture information really helps us to understand things like growth rates and over time survival uh, population estimates things like that um, and we do have a fair bit of satellite tracking which um, we can literally glue a tag to the turtles that will transmit its daily location and potentially other information like dive patterns or precise GPS locations. And so those are different classes of tags that we can put on them. A couple of years ago, got a permit to work in Biscayne National Park because we thought, you know, we do all this stuff, but it'd be a great local opportunity to train people on how to do the turtle jumping as well as, you know, getting my boat out and figuring out um, some tools or new techniques. Um, like we're spinning down blood right now. We have plasma from sea turtles in Biscayne with a collaboration to see if there's uh, hormones from birth control pills actually in the turtle blood. It is showing up in some fish blood and a pilot study we're doing with a, a colleague at FIU. And so we have a portable centrifuge and we're spinning our blood down on the boat. You know, we bring it home every day so we don't have to deal with, like, is there a freezer that we can put this key <laughs> sample in? You know, that kind of yeah. stuff. It's fun. 
and it's rewarding and we're answering questions that are really important for you know our natural resources and um, so we're doing a lot of the science that does inform national park management strategies and I also work on pythons and so that's kind of my role you know in in this type of arena but we're always trying to be very practical like how much time do they spend within the Florida Keys National Marine Sanctuary or within the boundaries of our national parks and then where do they go once they leave how are they coming back you know are they do they have injuries um are their nests successful you know all that kind of stuff so um just a lot wrapped up in one capture and then the recapture so when we're not out in the field it is it's definitely a data loss situation Yeah, so I I went to undergrad and was a French major. <laughs> All right. And I know, and really loved the languages. And I took science to get kind of over with, but I loved it. I had this great survey of biology class at Boston College, and I was so inspired. And I was like, hmm, maybe I could do biology. And so I continued both majors, and then at the end, just switched to science. Um, I just loved it. I got to do field work out in Cape Cod on turtles and puppies and piping plover and all sorts of stuff um and so and I had a, a pretty strong math background and so it wasn't hard for me to do that so I ended up with a biology major and I didn't have a French minor at the time but um basically would have would have had that and so then I went to grad school at Duke for my master's and when I was doing my master's I realized that I really wanted to go on for a PhD and applied for a few um scholarships one of which was with the federal government it was called a PMI or now it's called a PMF presidential management fellowship and I I was awarded that but in the interview process I met USGS I met other federal agencies and they offered me the chance to do my PhD funded in in a science center that you know sort of fit my interest and fit the interest of a PI and so that seemed to be the right way to go for me and I didn't know that much about what path was gonna be um so it was kind of uncharted territory no one in my family is a scientist my mom is a nurse my dad was in business and my dad was like what is this (laughs) this plan here um but anyway I had funding for my PhD and I did I went back to Duke because I had made a lot of headway did my dissertation there, but also down in Florida in the Everglades. So I learned a lot of the quantitative skills I needed for the job I'm currently doing then and expanded my horizons. Um, it's hard because I can't tell people to follow that exact same path, but I would definitely tell people to be open to new pathways and sort of paving the way. Um, what I do is definitely unique. I have some of the, the permits that no one else has, you know, in the world, Um and that includes, like, to do the work we are with trawling and in water captures with sea turtles. And, no, it's not easy, but it's possible, and, and we do it safely. And I've been able to do it, you know, with, with good chunks of funding from internal partners like Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, uh, National Park Service. And so I feel like I'm filling a role with, like, what are the conditions of our resources or living resources, so turtles, living marine resources, and the condition of their habitats. Um, and I don't think that goal will go away, but it's this is kind of a neat role that I I play. I also, I work, as I mentioned, on other reptiles. So Burmese pythons, I I never was an invasion biologist growing up, but I'm using every every skill I know how to deal with them, um, including tracking. And then we work on crocodiles and alligators as well in the Everglades. Those are iconic um, keystone species. It's sort of like be open to new things. You never know which way you're going to lead, but get a really solid, for me, scientific foundation. Um, I also, I took a writing class when I was in doing my master's, and that was really useful because I write all the time. And I took a typing class in high school, and I type really fast. So you never know what skill is going to, my fast typing speed. But, I mean, <laughs> this is something I actually tell, you know, kids when they're asking me. I said, you know, find something that you can bring to the team like in my case whether it's you know how to fix boats or you're really detail oriented or you know you're really organized you know whatever it is something that you are really good at and you compliment like the whole team and it doesn't have to be that you're a rocket scientist you know but some just basic personal skill maybe you're a really good communicator and you like to do the outreach presentations or you can really great great slides and you're a really good writer or you know whatever um so I feel like I've had to develop a lot of skills for better or for worse, but I, I do use a lot of different skills in this. And it's not just the science, obviously, but there's a lot of, you know, from where I sit, I have to sell my projects. I have to, I have to deliver. I have to also manage people and 
Uh, yeah, I have. I think I have ten employees right now. It's a mix of contract and federal employees. Um, I just had a student at FAU that graduated, so I mentor students at local universities, usually in their master's programs. Um, so I'm an adjunct faculty member at several universities. Um, we have one employee that joined us in February, and last year she was my NAGT intern, and so we participate in that program. We have another one starting in May sometime, um, <laughs> and those are typically you know four-month uh, intern programs. I happen to have a spot on my team because we got some additional funding, and so Veronica joined us most recently, so she's like the youngest. Um, and then... Uh, the permanent employee I have under me, Mike, he has he got his master's from me off like 12 years ago. He's my right-hand man for helping spend money and plan things out, do logistics and get our permits. And um, then my other employees have had a lot of uh, experience either in the field as divers or working on other projects. Um, one employee worked, uh, his wife works at the worked at the Sea Turtle Hospital in the Keys at that background, but he did a lot of um, servicing of sensors that are on lighthouses, and so he has a lot of boating experience, and I needed that, plus someone who could, he's very good um, with catching turtles and free diving. Our work in the Virgin Islands was mostly free diving for sea turtles to catch. Um, so we snorkel, and then we see a turtle, and then we dive down and catch it. Um, it sounds easy. It's not, but... <laughs> Um, yeah, then I have some people that, I have two postdocs that I just started about a year ago. It's my first two postdocs ever, and they're on two different projects. And one has a really good uh, statistical and modeling background. She worked on salamanders, but she's doing a lot of the market capture analyses with me. And the other one is, uh, she got her PhD in Australia, actually, but has a lot of background in marine protected areas. Um, and turtles so it just depends um they're learning new skills you know they have both been to workshops and they're learning our database and r and all, all sorts of things all my employees have been exposed to r and some use it more than other um but people enter data some people are doing things in the lab like preparing samples um yeah i don't know we have people that should be 50 to 70 percent of the time in the field and so right now everybody is doing different things at home we're on the cutting edge of, of sea turtle science and python science and things like that and um yeah i guess that's one of the things though like when you're in graduate school or when you're undergrad or just getting different jobs like get different skills you know like all this all these things like i was a waitress i waitressed my way through i worked with all sorts of people i cleaned cottages i folded t-shirts like i did all sorts of different things and i think all of that has actually helped me do my job really well juggle i would say all these different things some days are better than others some weeks are better than others. <laughs> i know some people need to hear that sometimes especially now maybe like you feel like you're stuck in this rut there's no options you know there are options and I think you know just always kind of honing your skill set or, or learning something different or new or trying new things you know we try th new things all the time um some of them work some of them don't but data from more males or females so it's definitely more females because obviously like the nesting beach stuff it's easier right. to catch them on a nesting beach because you can just go and they come to you in water stuff we have we have targeted a lot of males um but we it just depends you sometimes don't know what it is till you get it on the boat um sometimes you can see a big thick male sometimes sub adult we won't know for you know 10 more years if that animal was a female or not um so it just depends. We had a neat Navy project where we, the goal was to catch them in the winter time, like late fall and winter in the water. And we ended up with, um, I think we got 15 turtles. We had a good chunk of males. Like I think we all had more males than females. Um, that's rare. One of the things we know, like globally, there are very few studies on male sea turtles and their movements. So we're writing up one right now that potentially is the world's largest male sea turtle tracking paper. And I'm really excited about it. We have 40 males that we've got over time. 
it's harder because they don't often come to you. You have to go get them in the water, and so you need the boat, you need the support, you need the training and the know-how to get them. Um, and so it's taken a while to put this data set together, but it's one of the gaps. We just don't know much about male movements and stuff. And so what we're learning is really exciting. I'm literally watching one right now that we tagged in the fall off Key West. He came all the way up the reef track, and he spent um, some time off Delray Beach, which is north of where I live. And it se- he's a loggerhead, so it seems to be, you know, this was part of either him mating or making sure his lady <laughs> that he mated with down there made it up to a beach. I don't, I don't really know yet. Um, but now he's done, and he's going back to, to Key West. I'm literally watching him daily on the, the tracking website that we have. I'm calling it risky business. It's this time period when these males up and leave their little home range, and then they're literally, like, in the boat lanes, potentially, you know, getting hit by boats or whatever. And then they go back, so they have this migratory movement, presumably for, for male purposes, and then they go back to their little home range. So what what I've learned is you can actually, you know, tag animals and never catch that movement if you only get four or five months of time and it's in the summer and, you know, they're staying put. You'd be like, oh, this one doesn't leave. Well, it's the timing that we really want to catch to understand that movement. And so um, we always have a lot of data analysis going on. I'm writing a huge paper right now that we're ready to to submit it's my entire satellite tracking data set and like what's the driver for the tracking duration that we get for these these turtles and there's you know 360 turtles in this analysis so it's a lot but i think it'll be very helpful and practical for other researchers and permitting agencies and funders to know about um because it's like can you get a year can you get five years on these turtles you know the battery life from the manufacturer might say you can but what do you get in actuality and what's how like does it matter if you're in the Caribbean or the Gulf or if you're a green turtle or a loggerhead. And so we're answering a lot of those, those questions, um, those practical questions in that paper. So um, beyond the spatial information that we get for a study, we're actually doing these kind of synthetic, um, you know, lessons learned type papers right now, which is a really exciting point to be at. Um, There's no lack of stuff to do. (laughs) It's an accelerometer or an acceleration data logger. Okay. Um, yeah, it's basically what's in a Wii or what is in your phone, and it allows your phone to know if it's level um, or if it's moving. So there's definitely an accelerometer in every iPhone because it can tell your fitness moving, you know, steps and all that stuff. So imagine something similar to that, but like glued to a turtle. And then we have to get it back right now because it's too much data to transmit through the satellites. Mm. So we have to recapture those animals. Or <laughs> our new project is have that tag pop off after a certain number of days and then we have to find the floating packet that's the so (laughs) when i say technology like we have some ten thousand dollar turtles that we release which is really stressful but very exciting when we get all that technology back and we interpret the data and we're like aha (laughs) this is what it did yes um some there's some places where you have many many species because it has what is necessary to sustain them food wise um so green turtles eat seagrass and algae. Loggerheads are carnivores, so they eat, like in our neck of the woods, they'll eat lobsters and fish, and they can eat conch. Um, Poxels are more reef dwellers, so they eat sponges. Leatherbacks eat jellyfish, um, so they're kind of eating, I don't know, like wherever they want <laughs> um, in the water column. Uh, and ridleys eat uh, crabs as well. So... We have some areas where we definitely have loggerheads and camps in the same area. It seems like they're settling in slightly different depths, so they kind of spread themselves out. I believe these turtles have what would probably traditionally and by definition be called territories, and I suggested it in a paper I wrote about the Bahamas turtles because they seem to settle, like, with space around them, so, like, socially distant turtles. It's really crazy. There's this weird pattern where they're separated by this odd bubble of distance and maybe that's just the way they do it you know there's like some comfortable distance away from another turtle and so you're kind of claiming a territory i haven't been able to prove that i at some point in my career we'll we'll probably push that further but we need the observations at the foraging grounds to do that um i certainly have cited papers where there's some aggressive uh observations between turtles like loggerheads will look at each other and kind of circle 
each other in the water. Hmm. And that's like a bit of an aggressive, aggressive, like get out of my space kind of thing. We just don't have a ton of observations like that yet. And I would love to do some observational study, but yeah, anywhere where you have good foraging uh, habitat and potentially like the right bottom type. So if they need to like hide a little bit, um, a lot of the Florida coastline has what they call karst features. So it's like Swiss cheese. And sometimes a turtle can just like settle down a little bit into that crevice and feel comfortable and safe and um, have the water laminar flow like go over them because of their shape. Um, so they're out of the current and stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, it, it's sort of a mix of things that would make it ideal. We certainly have been a part of mapping where turtle foraging habitats are by species and then how those overlap with, with threats like the oil spill or, you know, shipping lanes and, and things like that. How, about how large is a clutch? I mean, about a hundred eggs. It depends on the species, but it's about a hundred eggs, about one in a thousand might make it to adulthood so yeah wow All it's right. hard to be a baby sea turtle <laughs> you know, it's hard to be a big sea turtle too but um, there's a lot of human influence like fisheries you know fisheries pressure um can get caught in a net or a trawl or a long line um there's boat strikes you know there's a lot of, of pressures there's natural things too like red tide i mean that affects because they're air-breathing animals so that affects their respiratory system just like ours um and that definitely wiped out a bunch um i think last year in the southwest florida area so there's yeah there's a lot of threats so you're based in florida which is a real popular spot for sea turtles um and i know they also tend to favor the texas gulf coast but um what about the uh, middle three gulf coast states well, there are Kemp's Ridley's, Greens, and loggerheads that nest in Alabama. It's mostly loggerheads. Uh, Mississippi also gets their, their fair share of loggerheads. Um, and Louisiana has a lot of uh, remote beaches that they don't talk too, too much about. But I would suspect there have been a couple um, crawls recently, and I think it's Kemp's and loggerhead based on the timing. There were definitely a few loggerhead nests found. So it's not that they're not there. It's just that they're more more rare and not as like the beaches that exist are not as big and as densely you know populated basically by sea turtles as florida beaches the sand is is different they're more lower lying sort of adjacent to marsh but they're definitely used it's just a lot more rare and i would say it's just not as dense god we had one turtle go across the so we tagged her in mississippi and we put this one of our pop off accelerometer packages on us on her and then we got it back so we got like 12 hours of really fine scale data on her and then she moved and she nested and people saw her in mexico so now we're hoping we track her back to mississippi so it's there's really exciting things kind of happening right now Oh, man, it's funny. My radio name is usually Hawksbill, but, <laughs> but I don't know. It's really hard to say. I mean, I am just, when I get these huge loggerheads and these huge green turtles, the loggerheads are just like, I don't know where, you know, some of them are going off to Mexico, and I'm just so impressed. Like, where did they come from, you know? They're just these ocean migrators and then the green turtle females some of them are so huge they're just like so impressive (laughs) so i don't know i don't know if i can really pick um they're all pretty badass awesome (laughs) the hawksbills when we free dive and catch them they're almost a little easier to catch because they sit and they're just they're real cute but they are like wild popcorn when you get them up on the boat they just want to bounce around and get away from you and so they're kind of difficult to work up um they have these really long necks and they stick it out and pull it back stick their head out and pull it back and so they're just like you feel kind of beat up after you work them up i don't know maybe loggerhead they're just they they have a story on their backs they have so many barnacles and like plants growing on them and i don't know they're sort of uh dinosaurs i mean they just look their big eyes and barnacles and the the stuff growing on them like they've got epibionts i mean they're so much life living on them sometimes it's uh it's like where have you been what are you doing well we scrape them off when we when we literally put the set tag on you just scrape use a paint scraper and we scrape off a good centimeter all around the tag 
goes and further out we clean it and everything and so it's like you know we joke that like they're at the day with us getting all clean and shined up uh, but there's a lot of, of biological material that we're removing um, including sometimes just sediment I mean it, they sit and so I guess turtles don't really make sounds do they? Oh no they make sounds they sort of grunt okay um, take deep breaths well, Kristen was right, and it's pretty difficult to find recordings of sea turtles, uh, particularly the five sea turtles of the Gulf of Mexico. You know, thank goodness for the internet, right? I found the Network for Endangered Sea Turtles, an organization off the East Coast uh, in North Carolina, and they have run hydrophones into sea turtle nests. And so while I may not have some great audio of sea turtles grunting and communication, what I do have is hatchlings uh, just before they start actually breaking through their eggshells and emerging from their nests. And this is them communicating to coordinate their efforts to break open their shells and dig out of the nest all together and make it out to the ocean in a large body so that they can better escape any predation and other threats to their survival in those first critical hours of their lives. So it's pretty cool. It's hard to hear exactly the noises, but you'll hear it. If you listen very closely, you'll hear a little chirping noise. Sometimes you'll hear a rustling sound. Uh, the organization calls it a furniture moving sound. And what that is, is them moving around inside their shells. And then you'll hear the little chirps of them talking to one another. So coyotes and then even um, washout of nests um, like that will occur. But there's multiple predators, raccoons, um, things like that, that will eat the eggs. The storms and inundation will, will take out clutches of eggs. Um, tropical storms usually roll through in June and eventually wipe out a good chunk of, of the early season nests. And then lighting like can disorient hatchlings and adult females so they can walk towards like the houses. And then they can get stuck and dry out if you're a baby or for a female, she's disoriented and like walking towards the road, um, that kind of thing. And then, you know, sharks and things like that, predators in the water, fish. I've seen records of mahi being caught with a whole bunch of hatchlings in their tummy. So there's a lot of threats to survival for, for any of these sea turtles. And then boat strikes and then poaching, you know, we've had a couple that have been taken. We do a lot of work in the national parks and so we're always you know, sort of informing what kind of turtle numbers they have and things like that. And the park is the one that decides, like, the management strategy, like whether a beach is open or not, or what the rules are on that beach um, that humans can do, who has access, you know, things like that. There is starting to be more of an effort, like, in the water, because a lot of what's easy to do is, oh, let's buy land. I mean, it's not easy in that it takes a lot of money, but if you buy land and set it aside, you can potentially just protect the nesting habitat, which is great. You're always going to need nesting habitat. That's the way these animals work. They live in the ocean, and their brief period on land is, is not enough just to protect them there. So I think the, the ethic needs to shift more toward where in the water can we protect them best, and that's a lot of the, the satellite tracking work that we're doing is, is sort of shedding light on where those areas are, where they settle, because um, it's not every bit of ocean certain habitat depth and distance to shore and stuff like that i mean i just feel really strongly that since they spend the majority of their lives in the water and that's where you have males and sub-adults and you know you really have to worry about water quality and the conditions of 
their forage resources in the water. Um, and so we're starting to see a shift more towards defining where those areas are and then what kind of designing protection strategies for those areas, which may include like protecting it because some of these areas are not within marine protected areas or in the U.S. or even in state's boundary. Um, it's it's off off of that. So, yeah, there, there needs to be definitely coordinated approaches to protecting those areas and legally. And then, yeah, things that occur in those areas will have to be thought about carefully. Anything that can help a sea turtle get out of a net is great. And so that thing, that Ted sewn in the right way, will allow a lot of turtles to escape if they are caught in a trawl. Um, and so, yeah, things like that would help with detrimental effects of being caught and drowned in a trawl uh, for, for sea turtles. I think there are probably other things, like avoiding areas altogether, that might make sense in combination with TEDs. And I know that that's, that's a real challenge because that's mostly a state-by-state case. And then at some <laughs> point you're dealing in, with, like, international waters. You're so far mm-hmm. out. Yeah, yeah a, lot of, a lot of the trawling is is in sea turtle habitat because it's shallow. I mean, you're not going to run hugely deep trawls. Um, but, yeah, so a lot of these things are co-occurring in sort of that sweet spot for where it's easier to trawl and then where they're going to get the ideal catch that they want. And then, unfortunately, the right where sea turtles live. So there's a lot of, like, overlap of all this stuff in the same sweet spot. We also hear from Joni Steinhouse, who runs the Gulf of Mexico Operations for Turtle Island Restoration Network, and we'll learn more about their conservation efforts, not only to restore habit and protect habitat for sea turtles, but numerous other coastal wildlife. My name is Joni Steinhouse, and I'm the program director for the Gulf of Mexico Office for Turtle Island Restoration Network. Turtle Island Restoration Network began back in 1989 as Sea Turtle Restoration Project, and so in 2019 we celebrated 30 years of ocean conservation. The organization is headquartered in Northern California, and we do have offices here in Texas and Costa Rica. And across the country and internationally, we have over 200,000 supporters around the world um, working with us for ocean conservation projects. And so we try to base our work. We hope it is fueled by science and backed by science. And we work with communities around the world to protect critical habitat. We do have a marine science, but obviously there'll be a terrestrial component to it, especially with the sea turtle project and needing the ability to come back to beaches to nest. And so we protect the critical habitats, uh, the marine wildlife, the ocean, and the watershed that sustains it. And a lot of our work is based with communities. In the Texas office, it's just myself and a program coordinator. And so we have over 300 volunteers and interns that help us get the word out. We do a lot of environmental education. We work through litigation and we work to pass national and international marine policies, do habitat protection and restoration work, and also help people make good decisions as far as consumer actions in relationship to the ocean and fisheries and being sustainable. So I came to the organization, actually I'm celebrating seven years. I came to the Turtle Island Restoration Network in May of 2013. And prior to my being here, there was Carol Allen and Hart, and that was Help Endangered Animals Ridley's Turtles. And she worked with Todd Steiner, our executive director, and she was part of the organization. But she was about 70, 75 miles from the coast, and she convinced Todd that we needed to have a presence on the coast. And so I opened the office for Turtle Island, and so I've been working with Carol. She's still on our board. And she was instrumental, if you're familiar with shrimp trawls and TEDs, the turtle excluder devices. Um, She really petitioned hard and fought in federal court to make it a requirement that the shrimp trawls use the TEDs. And, of course, it's a win-win. It allows the shrimpers to continue to trawl and harvest the shrimp, and it also allows the turtles to escape. It's amazing. I feel like so much of the the, uh, work done by nonprofits to protect sea turtles has tends to stem from a single passionate community member who's willing to just do the hard work 
Absolutely. And Carol Allen is that person. Um, She is truly amazing. When I met her the first time, I was working at the Houston Zoo. And the vet at the Houston Zoo, Dr. Flanagan, he does all the rehab work and has done it for probably close to 30 years for sea turtles that are stranded. And he told the keeper staff that Carol was in the federal courtroom in Galveston. And if we were able, if it was our day off and we were able to go to the courtroom and support her, she would appreciate it. And she worked nationally and internationally to raise awareness. Her passion was the Kemp's Ridley Sea Turtle, and she's still passionate about it today. There was a Head Start program at the Marine Fisheries Lab here in Galveston where they would bring turtle eggs from Mexico. They would take them to the National Seashore, South Padre Island National Seashore. They would incubate and release them, allow them to crawl down the beach, and then recapture them and bring them to the Galveston Lab so that they could grow for 9, 10, 11 months. And it was a head start to allow them, hopefully, to reach adulthood. They believe that on average, one out of a thousand hatchlings actually reaches adulthood. And because of their size and the multiple predators on the beach, and as soon as they hit the ocean, the predators, that if they're a little bit larger, they would be more successful. So she was instrumental in working with school children, both in the United States and in Mexico, to raise awareness about the turtles and literally collected pennies to help purchase food for these hatchlings while they were at the marine fisheries lab. So she's very passionate, and I feel very fortunate that when I came to open this office for Turtle Island that I had the opportunity to work with her for a while. So we really try to spread the word about impacts, not just to sea turtles, but to marine life, Um, and also wildlife in general in the coastal community. And so we work a lot to educate people about single-use products. We've had a Bring the Bag campaign that we work with the Surfrider Foundation, the Galveston chapter, and we're trying to reduce single-use plastic bags on the island. There have been multiple times where mammals, marine mammals, or our shorebirds or sea turtles become entangled or they ingest these bags. And so... In Texas, unfortunately, we cannot have bans on single-use products, and so we just raise awareness about them and encourage people to use their reusable bags. And so that's a simple um, commitment that people can make, is to make the switch from a single-use plastic bag to a reusable bag, and they'll be saving wildlife. We also have a final straw campaign along those same lines where we're trying to eliminate single-use plastic straws There are so many hundreds of thousands of straws used every day in the United States, and unfortunately, they cannot be recycled. And so they just end up in our landfill, and many times they end up blowing through the streets, out into the ocean, you know, again, in the watershed. And so we're asking restaurants on the island and bars to make the switch from just automatically putting a straw in a drink to waiting until their customer asks for a straw And then, if possible, to make the switch from the single-use plastic to paper because it's much nicer on our environment. And we also have a campaign on balloons. Um, Balloons impact wildlife. They get caught in our power lines. They just have a tremendous impact, and they don't break down as quickly as people might believe. They can be out in the environment for extended periods of time. And if they're attached with ribbons, that even entangles wildlife more and the potential if they ingest it that ribbon could get stuck in their intestinal tract and cause blockages and potentially even death and so we've been working on our balloon busting crew uh, with multiple organizations to document and individuals people can get on our facebook page and report any balloons they find in the environment we ask them if possible to send a latitude and longitude include an image of it and if there's any type of marking (laughs) so we can tell how far that balloon traveled But our ultimate goal with balloons is to, we're hoping, because if you have an intentional balloon release, it's basically putting litter up into the sky. And so we're working to gather all this data so that we can have a ban on intentional balloon releases. And then all these plastics that we find in our environment, they break down into smaller and smaller pieces until they become microplastics. And so we've been involved with a golf-wide campaign. It's across the Gulf. Florida State University, Dr. Meyer McGuire began the program back in 2016, and it's a citizen scientist program, and we have high school and elementary students that when school was in, they were collecting samples of sand and water 
from our beach in our bay, and they were processing it, looking for these microplastics. And so they can be small pieces of plastic that have broken down over time. They can be tiny pieces of thread from the clothing, fibers from clothing, or they can be tiny, tiny pieces of fishing line to the monofilament. And unfortunately, in our sand and water samples, since we've been doing this project, we find hundreds and hundreds of pieces of these microplastics. And we also know that they're in tap water now and that wildlife is ingesting it. And it's not necessarily that if you eat fish that you're eating the plastic, but unfortunately different chemicals that are in the water could be adhered to this plastic. And that's what's going to be absorbed into the flesh of the fish that you might be consuming. So we're working really hard to raise awareness that this single-use plastic that we all use and rely on If it's not recycled or disposed of properly, it can become these microplastics in the environment. Yeah, advocacy definitely is a huge portion of the work that we do, and whether it's dealing with the city or state or federal agency and some potential permitting issue or some rule that they're considering passing. So even going back to the TEDs that you mentioned, there are some vessels, they're called skimmer trawls, and they work near shore or inshore, and we've been working for at least 15 years. They're, they had an exemption because of the size of the vessel and the, the position of their nets when they were trawling. They were not required to use TEDs. And so we've been working with multiple organizations to get legislation, to get regulations passed that require these skimmer trawls to use the TEDs. And they finally did come out with it, but they only the, – the, regulations only apply to vessels that are 40 feet or larger. And so there's still a lot of boats out there working, shrimping, that could potentially interacting with turtles. If you're working inshore, we have our greens that like to stay in the bays. We have a lot of juveniles that would be in the area, and they could still be interacting with these turtles and these trawls. And so that's a battle that's that's still going to continue. And even though that some vessels have been required to use TED since the late 80s, we're still working to ensure that every shrimp vessel that's working out in the Gulf is required to use a TED. In addition to that, we follow different fisheries and the type of um, gear that they use. Uh, in the Gulf, some commercial fisheries use long lines. And so it's literally like it sounds. It's a very long line with multiple hooks. And many times they're targeting a specific species, whether it be tuna or grouper or something. But it could, while these lines are out in the Gulf, they're also going to catch other species, you know, the bycatch, the unintended catch. And so we monitor fisheries and make comments when possible. And we also send out what we call action alerts. We'll draft emails and make our members aware of it, encourage them to also reach out to the agency, whether it's marine fisheries or the U.S. Corps of Engineers or whoever might be looking at an issue. And we, of course, with the oil and gas exploration in the Gulf, there's many concerns with the interaction it has with wildlife and the potential that exists for spills. And so we're constantly monitoring new leases uh, in our area on our coastline where we patrol. We, We run the nest patrols with the university here, 72 miles of beach. And on the very active area of the coast in Surfside Beach, They're proposing to put a large pipeline, three-foot pipeline, 30 miles off to do an export terminal where it could load like 85,000 barrels of oil onto these vessels that carry it to other parts of the world. And so we're very concerned because this pipeline would run right through a, a, a prime nesting area on the beach, and so we monitor that. So it just depends on what is being permitted, what the issue, even dune restoration projects Since Hurricane Ike, there has been talk of building a coastal spine on the upper Texas coast and literally building a giant gate like you would see in the Netherlands to restrict the the storm surge from getting into the bay and ultimately up into the Houston ship channel. And we have a lot of concerns about that, how it would change the velocity of the water going in and out of our bay, how it would change the salinity, how it would hurt multiple species that migrate in and out of the bay, and especially the little, you know, hundreds of fish and shrimp species that start out in the bay and then have to at some point migrate out into the Gulf. And so there's multiple issues, you know, even coastal construction, we monitor that, the beach cleaning that they do when they're trying to remove the organic material that washes up on the beaches from tides. Um, It's very beneficial. It holds our sand in place. It's a place for our shorebirds to 
rest to find food and of course we're always concerned that there would be a turtle that could potentially be stranding in that organic material but they take heavy equipment out and that's not just to texas that's across the gulf where many communities want their beaches raked and so we worked really hard to ensure that they had state and federal permits that were needed and also in some areas city permits and that wildlife monitors are in place to ensure the safety of shorebirds and iron-dangered sea turtles that nest on our beaches. You give up single-use plastics, take your own reusable bags, get yourself a reusable water bottle. Um, Our tap water is healthy in most communities, and so, you know, make that switch from single-use plastics to reusable items will help. If you're an angler and you go fishing, please don't discard your fishing line. We have multiple tubes set up. I feel so fortunate. Our volunteers, in the time that I've been here since 2015, we've recycled over 1,000 pounds of fishing line, and that's huge when you think about how little fishing line weighs, and so we have tubes collection tubes at our piers we have them at hot spots and we have them on on the shoreline and so if you're interested many communities even if you don't live in texas have some type of monofilament fishing line recycling program so if you're an angler please make sure you do that and if you like to come to the coastline anywhere in the gulf of mexico and you bring all your beach gear and you bring your chairs and your toys please make sure you take that all home Many times when we're out on the beach, people leave that equipment. And if you're staying for multiple days in our community, they did pass our city pass legislation that you have to remove all your beach gear at at night. And that's to protect our wildlife. So just making simple choices, practicing the leave no trace can help tremendously. And if you are in the area, I hope you look us up. And if you're not, um, please visit our website. It's seaturtles.org. So you can visit us on Facebook. We have a main, our Turtle Island Restoration Network is our main page for our our headquarters in in California. And then we also have a Turtle Island Restoration Network Gulf of Mexico page. And we share projects that we're working with with partners across the Gulf. So yeah, I ask you to please visit that. And we're also on Twitter and Instagram. Well, I hate to say personal favorite. Of course, (laughs) I'm going to be partial to our state sea turtle. It's the Kemp's Ridley. It's the smallest. They're only about two feet in their carapace measurement, and they weigh about 60 to 100 pounds, and they're critically endangered. And it is nesting season right now. Now, Nesting season begins on the Texas coast in April and runs through mid-July, and we can have hatchlings of undetected nests come all the way out through September, October. So I, I appreciate all wildlife, but, of course, I'd have to be partial to our state sea turtle. Living in salty ocean water is not easy, and many marine organisms have special adaptations in order to survive in the excessive salt of their environment. If sea turtles had a salt concentration in their body the same as the seawater surroundings, it would be lethal. When eating, they ingest a large amount of salty seawater. To get rid of this excess salt, sea turtles have large glands by their eyes that release salt in higher concentrations than the surrounding ocean water. These salt glands are why many people who observe sea turtles on land believe that the animals are crying. In particular, the leatherback sea turtle has extremely large salt glands compared to other species. Their glands are more than twice the size of their brains. They require such large salt glands because of their preferred diet of jellyfish. Since jellyfish are composed of mostly seawater, the leatherback ingests much more salt while feeding than any other of the sea turtle species. So, Luke, it turns out turtles are not colorblind, but they are myopic or nearsighted. So they don't see very well no matter what. And when researchers go out to conduct field studies, it's uh, when the turtles come up to lay their eggs. They always make sure to use red lights um, so as to not confuse the turtles and uh, make them think that they're going towards the ocean and the moon when instead they're going to false electrical light from a flashlight or from homes or other street lighting so so turtles do you think turtles sleep yeah they sleep really yeah i do i'm pretty sure they're like dolphins they keep one eye uh awake and 
Uh, something about dolphins, they sleep, but or like felines, they sleep, um, but like they're, since they live uh, underwater, I'm pretty sure like they come up for air every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Sea turtles cannot breathe underwater, but they can hold their breath for long periods of time, between four to seven hours when resting. While holding their breath, their heart rate slows significantly to conserve oxygen. Up to nine minutes can pass between heartbeats. Because of this, sea turtles can stay underwater for an extended period of time when not stressed. Their breath-holding abilities allow them to dive deep in the ocean to find food. Most turtles can dive to depths of up to 290 meters, or 960 feet. I like the leatherbacks, and they're usually all black, and they have white spots on their shells. Um, my favorite sea turtle... I really like, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of the Kemp's Ridley. It's native to this area. Um, it's a lesser known turtle because it, its environmental impact isn't as great as some of the other sea turtles. Like, say, the, I believe the loggerhead, which eats um, like, jellyfish. Yeah. The Kemp's Ridley is primarily a food source for other organisms. It's just, it's like... It's food. You know, it's just a little turtle that other things eat on. It doesn't really serve any other purpose other than being a part of the food chain. And all um, the, and that's pretty much why they're critically endangered. Yeah, because everything just eats them, and then we destroy their habitat. Um, yeah. But I like them because, one, they're the smallest of the sea turtles, which makes them the cutest. <laughs> and uh, whenever I'm out fishing in the Laguna Madre, I'll, uh, I'll see them every once in a while. It's pretty fun to see a little turtle, little sea turtle head poke up in the water and kind of look at you and swim away. That is cool. did is there's hotlines for marine mammals or sea turtles or different species throughout the Gulf of Mexico and so we established the 866 turtle 5 that is a hotline that goes to multiple organizations the Texas coast is over 300 miles long and so from our border with Louisiana all the way down to the border with Mexico we have different nonprofits and some uh, college institutions and other facilities like aquariums and such that will respond anytime you see a turtle on the beach whether you that turtle is nesting and it is nesting season right now for our sea turtles if it's nesting or if it's stranded if it appears to be injured or even if it's deceased if you call that 866 turtle 5 number somebody will respond and we learn so much from the turtles unfortunately that are stranded um, you know, we're able to tag them, we're able to document them, and it's an entire Texas coast, the Sea Turtle Stranding Network. And so just for people to realize and to please put that number in their phone, if they're ever visiting Texas, the 866-TURTLE-5 number, if you see a turtle, to please report it. That's super important. Joni shared with us the number to call when you see sea turtles in peril in Texas. If you happen to be in Florida and you see sea turtles, the number to call is the wildlife alert number at 888-404-FWCC. That's 888-404-3922. Or you can also report that online in Florida. If you're in Alabama, the number to call is 866-732-8878. So if you're in Alabama and you see a sea turtle in in harm's way or otherwise endangered or a a nest that needs to be marked, the number to call is 866-732-8878. In Mississippi, the hotline is 228-369-4796. That's the Mississippi Sea Turtle Stranding Hotline. 228-369-4796. Here in Louisiana, the phone number to call for sea turtle strandings is 844-SEATRTL, 844-732-8785. 
Another good number here in Louisiana is a Southeast Region Marine Mammal Stranding Network that's run by NOAA, and the number for that is 877-942-5343. So if you see any other sort of marine mammal that is in peril, that's also a number that you can keep handy when you're out enjoying the Louisiana's coastal wetlands. And that's it for this episode of Coastal Connection. Bye, buddy. Bye. This podcast is brought to you by the Coastal Wetlands Planning, Protection, and Restoration Act. The QIPRA program is a federal legislation program enacted in 1990 designed to identify, prepare, and fund construction of coastal wetlands restoration projects. Since its inception, over 200 coastal restoration or protection projects have been authorized. For more information about the QIPRA program, find us online at lacoast.gov. Become our friend on Facebook or follow along in our Instagram adventures at quipra underscore outreach. We want to know what you're thinking. What are your questions and concerns about the coastal wetlands of Louisiana? Drop us a line on social media or email us directly at cwppra at gmail.com. The views and opinions expressed on this or any program on AOC Podcast Network do not reflect the views and opinions of IPF Consolidated Government, Cox Communications, LUS Fiber, AOC Community Media, its board of directors, or its staff. To learn more about becoming a community media producer, visit us on the web at aocinc.org.